Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Kyone Wolf here in North Balachulish, Scotland, and I'm tapping into the excitement among the voters here on the eve of the independence vote. So let's hear what they're saying. What do we want? That's right, independence. And when do we want it? That's right, now. Can I point out just a few things wrong with what you're doing? I don't know. Can he do that? Oof, that's a big no. These are not voters. These are sheep. But sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Macboom! Also, they didn't say independence. They said bah. Mm, fair enough. Let me ask it another way. Listen to me, you cud-chewing, tiny-brained ungulates. Do you want to live as fawning lickspittles to an uncaring British crown, or do you want to be free sheep walking with your empty heads held high? <laughs> there you have it. This is not only unscientific, it's a disrespectful treatment of a very serious issue by pretending sheep can talk. But I have to move on. How do I get to Aberdeen from here? How does he get to Aberdeen? Did you get that? Down this road for seven kilometers, left at the fork, followed the signs from there? So they say. Thank you. Today on the show, a more serious, scientific, and respectful consideration of the Scottish independence vote. And now he's registered to vote in Brigadoon, Colin McEnroe. And it is a problem because it only appears once every 100 years. Uh, I feel like I'm essentially disenfranchised. All right, so that's the end of Sheep for today's show. Uh, I think bagpipes will be kept to a minimum. There will be no quotes from uh, from Braveheart. Uh, we are actually going to plunge quite seriously uh, into the question of Scottish independence. We're sitting here right on the eve of that vote. Uh, and I say here, not all of us are sitting here. Some of us, uh, us are sitting quite appropriately in Scotland. But sitting here in studio with us is Harriet Jones, business reporter for WNPR, and Edinburgh, Scotland native. Uh, also, Robert McLaughlin, a lecturer in modern European history at the University of Hartford. Uh, Sitting in Edinburgh in the BBC studios there uh, are uh, Professor David McCrone. He's an emeritus professor of sociology at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, And Rebecca Castellani, who you knew as a nose panelist uh, for at least a season or two uh, here in Hartford. Now she's in Edinburgh. She's our special Edinburgh correspondent. Uh, this job pays lavishly, as it, as every foreign correspondent job does. So that's who's here also uh, on uh, uh, on tape. Well, it's not really on tape, but uh, we have a recorded interview from last week with Professor John Curtis. Uh, he is a specialist uh, in, uh, in polling, uh, and he sort of uh, has condensed uh, the, the state of public opinion for us, although there may have been a few shifts in that even in the few days since we talked to him. But So, um, Professor David McCrone, uh, I'm going to begin with you. This is such a difficult 
difficult and compl- complex thing to talk about because, you know, it, get t- it gets talked about in terms of um, governmental structure. It gets talked about in terms of political leanings. Uh, it gets talked about uh, in terms of, of identity, in terms of history. Um, is the fact, oh, and it also gets talked about, and you'll hear, hear John Curtis talk about this too, as this kind of chain of events that, that, that had un- unanticipated consequences and maybe even acquired, as they say, a life of its own. Um, but, but to your way of thinking, uh, Professor David McCrone, is there a simple explanation for why this vote is taking place tomorrow? Well, there is in one respect. Remember that Scotland was an independent country, an independent state from its origin in the first millennium right the way through to the early 18th century. And then there was a, a what we call a, a marriage of convenience, a treaty of union, not a conquest, a treaty of union with England to create Great Britain. But it was always, a, it was always a, 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 an arrangement in which Scotland held on to a lot of its domestic institutions, to its legal system, its education system, its system of religion, even its money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone's been over in Scotland, they know this. This is Scottish money. Yeah, it's sterling, but it's Scottish money. So we we have our own identity. We've always had our own identity, uh, and the issue really has become since the middle of the 20th century. Well, should we have more powers? Yeah. What kind of powers should we have? Should indeed we be independent? So that's where we've got. But it's got a long history, and history really matters in Scotland. It doesn't determine who we are or what we're going to do, but it matters. You've got a long history, but in a way, what what that's suggestive of is that for hundreds of years, uh, you thought you were married. Now you think you're dating. Uh, and and I'm just I'm sort of wondering about the present moment and whether there are shifts in Scottish identity that have more to do with culture, maybe more to do with the way globalism and the internationalization of some Scottish cities have have introduced a different kind of spirit about what it means to be a citizen of this particular place. Well, we, we, the, there was a concern simply with the state, that is the, uh, you know, the self-governing political entity, which was deemed to correspond with the nation. The culture and the politics went together, the so-called nation state. Now, we live in a world in the, in the 21st century in which nations and state, states do not necessarily correspond. So in, in lots of places in Europe, and indeed in North America, there are places which have a very strong sense of their own national identity, for example, Quebec, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in, in Canada, for example, or indeed Scotland and, and, and Catalonia and Spain and so on and so on. So lots of places have a very strong sense of their own identity. And also, although it doesn't automatically lead to a demand for independence or greater autonomy, these are places which have a very strong sense of, 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 of national identity. It's nothing to do with hating anyone. It's simply to do with uh, self-government, with, with the demand for greater autonomy reflecting the wishes of the people on the ground. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't have suggested that it had to do with hating anybody, but I wondered whether it had to do with um, uh, with developing a culture that suddenly raised the question in a lot of people's minds, well, what about us makes us citizens of the United Kingdom of Great Britain? I mean, what, what about us is distinctly true in that way? And I guess you're sort of suggesting that at any given moment, whether it's Basques or, or Quebecois or, or Scots, at any given moment, uh, people can sort of wake up and say, well, to what degree do we want to make that structurally true about us? Yeah, well, uh, these are places, all of the places that you mentioned have their own history, their own culture, their own identity, but it's not driven by simply, if you like, cultural ways. It's to do with economics. For example, the discovery of oil in the North Sea in in the late 1960s, early 1970s was a very important driver to greater autonomy. You know, we entered the Union 
1707. We were quite happy with that. We, we played a part, in fact, a disproportionate part in the British Empire. The empire died by the middle of the 20th century. Along comes oil in the, in the early 1970s. It, 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 it creates, if you like, a, a new form of nationalist party in the Scottish National Party. And we say, hey, maybe in this house, this marriage of convenience, what the French call the mariage de raison, um, maybe we should simply look at this again. Maybe we need to take some control of where we are, and indeed, maybe we simply move house. So this is a debate about do we stay in the house, do we move next door, where do we go with all of this? So that, that's an ongoing thing, which is, uh, has been a, a basic part of Scottish political thinking for certainly 307 years. You know, it's sometimes interesting to um, get uh, the perspective of somebody who's from there and goes back there periodically but doesn't live there. Because if you live there, obviously, you're the lobster in the pot where the water is turning turning up one degrees uh, per hour. Uh, you may not notice the changes. Um, Harriet, as you go back and forth uh, between here and your native land, have you been noticing shifts in the zeitgeist, shifts in attitudes that you think may have led up to this moment? Um, you know, it's interesting um, when... The professor talks about that moment in the 70s when um, oil revenues became a reality in Scotland, and then that, that fueled a sense of nationalism for some people in Scotland. I remember that very well. And, um, you know, I think since that time, there's always been kind of a hardcore minority in Scotland who've wanted independence, who've, who've you know, felt that was the road to go down. But it's never felt to me like more than a minority until really the last few weeks. You know, I was back there in July. I tend to I try to go back every summer. Um, and even then, even just a couple of months ago, it felt to me like, you know, people weren't really focusing at that point yet on the referendum. And people still, you know, the, the majority feeling at that point was still, it's a lovely idea, but it's not been practically explained enough. There isn't enough detail to this to make me vote yes. Uh, <clears throat> Professor David McCrone, one way in which these things happen, one way in which these things come to a tipping point uh, can be over a single issue. I mean, here in the United States in the 19th century, essentially the whole question of slavery and abolition uh, kicked off a, a civil war, a war of disunion. Um, that's That doesn't seem to be the case this time around. There isn't a single issue as far as anybody over here can, can see looking at it. What there does seem to be is a very charismatic personality behind this. To what degree uh, is Alex Salman, the leader of, of this movement, the leader of, of the Nationalist Party, um, uh, a precipitating factor in, in what's happened here? Well, it, it helps having a, uh, having a good public figure, but it's not essential to the story. Um, it, it's not as if we've just woken up in the last month to independence as opposed to not independence. There has been a concern for greater self-government going back a long way. And for much of the history of the last 307 years, uh, people have been concerned with running their own affairs. I mentioned earlier that the legal system is different, education, religion, and all those sorts of things. People had a sense of, 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 of running the things that matter in domestic affairs. Now, increasingly, in the, from the, the last quarter of the 20th century, control over those affairs were perceived, rightly or wrongly, to, to, to drift towards Westminster and UK governments which are overwhelmingly English governments, because England's population is ten times the size of Scotland, we got a government we didn't elect. Uh, we, you know, and, and that has driven a lot of the concern. Scotland, there's a kind of grit in the oyster here, that Scotland joined the United Kingdom 
It had its own autonomy, its own institutions, but yet, but yet, we were a minority. And there was then a sense of the grit in the oyster saying, well, wait a minute, we're OK as long as we are given freedom to run education, health, education, uh, law and so on. But as soon as those got, those got tightened up by a Westminster government from the 1970s onwards, then said, hey, wait a minute, we're losing autonomy. We need more autonomy. So there's then a debate which the yes-no does violence to, it seems to me, whereby people then discuss, well, what, how much autonomy should we have? Should we have greater control over taxation or welfare but remain within the British state, or should we go for what might be independence in the, in the modern world, whatever that might look like? So think of it not as an either-or, a binary divide, but as a spectrum along which people have travelled towards greater self-government. Well, that's what I wonder whether this kind of binary decision that people are faced with is kind of one of the things that's maybe driven um, up yes in the polls. Because if you look at the Edinburgh Agreement that created the referendum, um, there was a, a debate before that about whether devolution should have been one of the options, whether there should have been three different options, yep. if, I'm, if I remember that rightly. So yep. do you think the fact that devolution is not on there is something that has driven us to the yeah. point we are now? Yeah, well, you see, I mean, I think the no campaign, I mean, the no campaign across the board has not been very successful. Let's put that politely. Um, one of the, its great successes uh, is to create exactly the conditions it said it didn't want. We started this campaign two years ago with about a third of people saying they wanted independence. Now we have nearly half of people saying they want independence. So they have actually increased by 50% the number of people saying yes. Now, be careful, as they say, what you wish for. They tried to drive out the, the devolution max option, which was the halfway house, if you like, between what we have at the moment and full, ind full independence by forcing people to choose. Now, uh, as we say in Scotland, we are thrown, we are difficult, we're stubborn. We don't like to be forced to choose. Um, we, we, we have this option, so therefore the, the middle position was then squeezed between yes and no, and many of those people, not a majority, a third of those people, have moved to the yes. So now we have a situation where virtually half of the population of Scotland is in favour of independence. Did the no campaign intend that two years ago? Surely not. But that's exactly what they've done by creating the binary choice. This is the perfect time uh, to go to the tape, as we say, um, about a week ago or sometime last week. It's all a blur now. Uh, I talked to Professor, Professor John Curtis. Uh, I think I introduced him uh, in the tape, so we'll just go to that right now, Betsy. To set the stage for this conversation, we're going to begin with Professor John Curtis of the University of Strathclyde and the president of the British Polling Council. Uh, he's the chief commentator at whatscotlandthinks.org, which is, by the way, just a great website to go to watch how at least scientifically polled opinion on this question is unfolding. So first of all, well, welcome to our show. You're welcome. One of the things uh, that you have uh, on this site is a, a poll of polls. This is somewhat similar to what's happening quite a bit in the U.S. these days, led by a guy named Nate Silver, where rather than look at one poll or just look at a list of polls, there's an attempt to combine, in some ways, the polls to get a collective wisdom out of them. So maybe we can begin there. What, what does the poll of polls tell you right now? Well, uh, as of now, uh, we're now looking at, the, on average, the yes side at 49, the no side at 51. That's the highest yes vote we've had yet. It's just edged up as a consequence of the release of yet another poll saying the uh, no side were just a couple of points ahead. 
So we are now looking at a referendum race which is apparently, according to the polls, remarkably tight and much tighter than it was just three or four weeks ago. Uh, for most of the time since the early spring, that average was running at around yes, 43, and no, 57. It bounced up and down a little bit. But then in the last two or three weeks, it's begun to edge up systematically and indeed, in some respects, quite dramatically. And while so far we've only had one poll that actually puts the yes side ahead and no are indeed probably still have their noses in front, um, this is now look as though, if the polls are right at least, a referendum that's going to go down to the wire. I'm not the scientist on this, you are, but it looked to me as though what was happening, and it's very dramatic when you look at it graphed too, because you have that exciting moment where two lines appear to be ready to cross. In other words, as the no line falls a little bit as a matter of percentage and the yes line goes up, they are veering towards one another in a very dramatic and exciting way. But it looked as though one of the things that was happening was that there was a clearing up of some of the undecideds, right? There was a pretty large block of undecideds for a while, and they are deciding. That's part of what's going on, Um, and it's undoubtedly true that the proportion of people who say they're undecided is gradually diminishing in the polls, although the polls still vary very considerably in how many undecideds they find, and inevitably, therefore, some folk of the undecided are going to yes or going to no. But in fact, we also know from one of the companies uh, that do the polling over the Internet and who keep a record of what people have said to them when they've been polled in the past that actually there are indeed people out there who said they were going to vote no, you know, two or three months ago, who now say they're going to vote yes, and there are more of those folk who've gone in the opposite direction. So I think, you know, it's a mistake to simply think that, uh, you know, the referendums uh, is simply shifting as a result of people uh, who were previously undecided making up their minds, not least because, in fact, if that were all that were going on, given that many a poll just a few months ago were saying that over 50% of people say they were going to vote no, even with the don't knows included um, in the calculations. Uh, I think one has to say it's pretty clear that isn't just what's going on. Indeed, in fact, we also know from the polls it's a bit of a mistake simply to think that there are just two groups of voters out there, the undecided and the decided. In fact, people are on what we might call a spectrum of indecision. So, yes, 55 60% of people may probably made their mind up at the moment they knew this referendum was going to happen. But everybody else, varying degrees of certainty, and certainly plenty of people saying, well, you know, if I had to vote now, I'm, I might vote, I think I'd vote yes, but, you know, what I'll do in a week's time, I'm still not sure. So, to that extent, at least, shifting the numbers is about not just simply mo- mobilizing the don't knows, it's also about getting those people who've got an inclination, but it's not a definite decision to switch to the other side. John Curtis, I know you're busy, uh, so this will be your your last question, but it's a big one. Uh, The big one is, how did we come to this exciting moment? I mean, can you you look at a a public opinion polls or or anything else and say, wow, well, from the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, this is a natural progression. This is just a set of questions that more and more people began asking leading up to this fateful moment. Or is there some other trigger that precipitated the referendum you're about? to have? The answer is that the fact that we're having this referendum is a result of the law of unintended consequences (laughs) and the impact of unintended and accidental events. In setting up the Scottish Parliament, one of the principal aims of many of those, no, not all, but many of those who backed the idea was that if we showed that 
the United Kingdom could accommodate Scotland's distinctive needs and aspirations. By providing it with the ability of a distinctive measure of self-government, people won't want to leave the United Kingdom. And that, that, therefore, to use a famous phrase used by one Labour politician at the time, nationalism would be killed stone dead. What we discovered, however, is that actually if you create a parliament for a nation that is a distinctive part of a wider multinational state, and that nation has a nationalist party that aims to promote the interests of that part of the world, then actually in elections to that new Scottish Parliament, that Nationalist Party tends to do rather well and certainly does rather better than it does elections to the UK White House of Commons. Marry that to the fact that the Scottish Parliament is elected through proportional representation, partly deliberately to make it difficult for anybody to win an overall majority. The SNP, for the first time in its life, was able to become a major parliamentary party, and it became the principal opposition in the Scottish Parliament. First time in his life it enjoyed anything like that position. Then we come to the fact that actually by 2007 the Labour Party in general is not so popular. Tony Blair is still in his dying days of office. And the Scottish National Party, with Alex Summer, their current leader, coming back to the Scottish Parliament, having come back as leader of the party, highly charismatic, just, just manages to win in 2007. As in the next four years, the Scottish National Party creates for itself a reputation of being rather good at governing Scotland. Meanwhile, in 2011, the Scottish Labour Party, their principal opposition, frankly made an almighty mess of their election campaign. They said they would stand up to the Conservative government in London. In practice, the whole thing, the campaign was, became a disaster when their leader had to be hustled out of the front door of a subway sandwich shop and out the back door because he was being accosted by a left-wing demonstrator. This was the man who was going to stand up to, to London and he couldn't stand up even to a left-wing demonstrator. And the confidence in Labour's ability to run the Scottish government collapsed. So as a result of that, therefore, mistakes by the Labour Party, the fact that uh, creating a Scottish Parliament made it uh, possible for the SNP to win votes they couldn't previously win, all led in 2011 to the SNP winning an overall majority. And then, crucially, the decision of the UK government to say, OK, we accept, therefore, given the SNP have an overall majority, that they have an overall majority in which they have promised a referendum, we accept you have the moral right to hold a referendum, and then enter the negotiations to make that possible. Why did they do that? Well, actually, for quite an important reason. And here, why the narrowing of the polls comes as a bit of a shock. They agreed to that referendum because the UK government reckoned if we hold this referendum, and as we anticipate Scotland votes, no, the sword of Damocles, the constant threat that Scotland will leave unless it's given more, will be removed. Well, we'll discover on Thursday whether they've made the right call or not, <laughs> but the call now looks a rather more uncertain one than it did just a few weeks ago. Those are indeed unintended consequences. Every step taken to militate against Scottish nationalism and independence seems to have fueled the fire unpredictably. Uh, Professor John Curtis, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, guys. So, um, Professor David McCrone, I'm interested to hear whether you buy that particular scenario. It's a pretty persuasive one. If you keep handing uh, people the keys to the car, you're eventually going to create a driver. Um, Is that 
it. I mean, the the, no. the person receiving the key has to want to drive the car too. Yeah, there, there's also <clears throat> there's also something that John John didn't have time to mention, which is the election in 2010 of a conservative liberal democrat coalition government, which then embarked on a program of austerity and cuts in health and education and so on. Now, people in Scotland turned round, not unreasonably, and said, we didn't vote for that. What's the mandate uh, for these cuts at a Westminster level? Uh, these parties had a total of 36% of the popular vote in Scotland, or 22% of the representatives. This is not our decision. And this helps to fuel... Uh, the fact that Scot that England is five times, sorry, ten times the size of Scotland, means that we get a government we don't elect, and that is known as the democratic deficit. So this fuels the whole thing. If, for example, the government had been much more emollient, had been, uh, uh, well, even a Labour government, who knows? Uh, the, the, then this this demand. Uh, would not have been as straightforward as it is. And if you also, as John says, set it up as a yes-no, you're taking a huge risk. Because, if you like, everyone's a nationalist, with a small n in Scotland. Everyone gives priority to their Scottish identity. It's not that we are capital N nationalists rushing off to vote for the SNP. Uh, that we are small N nationalists. We're looking for what is what is in the best interest of Scotland. And if that remains in the UK, fine. If not, then we reserve the right to revert back to, to what we were in the 18th century. Uh, now, no one's allowed who remembers the 18th century, but nevertheless, embedded in the public mentality is the sense that we were once an independent people. Maybe we can be so again. Uh, um, and all those sorts of things. So the reaction, if you like, to London government, heavy-handed London government, is a very important element to add to John's mix in the soup, if you like. I mean, in the next segment, uh, both uh, Professor David McCrone and Robert McLaughlin are going to take us back to the 18th century and uh, talk a little bit about how we got to where we are today. But before we do that, as we're wrapping up this segment, uh, Harriet, one of the things that he's saying is similar to something that you said to me earlier, which is that, you know, I, and I hate trafficking in political labels. I don't think that they're all that useful. But, you know, there's sort of a sense, obviously, that Scott, the Scottish electorate is more, quote unquote, liberal uh, than the British electorate. Uh, and that in particular, the last few decades, what shall we say, three and a half decades, have, has kind of been a slow burning fuse in terms of Westminster's attitudes versus uh, what exists in the heartland of Scotland. Yeah, that's undoubtedly true. It's true to say that the uh, electorate in Scotland is to the left of that in England. Um, and if you think back over the last few administrations, Margaret Thatcher's administration was pretty much reviled in Scotland, and she changed um, Scotland in ways which the Scots didn't particularly like, especially um, with some of the industries that were closed down, the way that, that the economy changed. Um and then, you know, Tony Blair had kind of a honeymoon period, if you like. I mean, he was the person who um, made it possible for the Scottish Parliament to come about. But then his policies in Iraq were extremely unpopular in Scotland. So really, uh, and then, uh, as Professor McCone was saying, you know, David Cameron has been very unpopular too. So over that piece, over, you know, the, the, the time that most people can remember in Scotland, 
largely government in Westminster has been unpopular. And, and even though there was sort of a three-party overture uh, made earlier this week, I mean, the irony of all this is is the, the principal person who has to come around with the with the dozen roses and the box of chocolates uh, to woo the Scottish uh, electorate is the person they don't like, uh, is David Cameron. Um, it's been very interesting to see him this week. I mean, I almost felt sorry for him. He, I mean, he had no choice. He had to go there and go say something. But the effect of him going to Aberdeen and making a speech was almost to fuel the Yes campaign. <laughs> oh, yeah. we have so much more to talk about. We do want to talk a little bit more about devolution, explain uh, a bit more about what that means. We do want to go back into history. We want to hear about the uh, from the most hip and happening American on the streets of Edinburgh uh, about how things feel uh, to her as she uh, makes her way through Scotland. So we've got all that ahead of us. We'll take a break. We'll come back after this. Should I stay or should I go now? And welcome back to Harriet Jones's Rockin' Scottish Independence Eve special. Uh, I probably left out a few names of that. So uh, we wanted to do take a, do, do want to take a little trip back into history now and talk about how we got to where we are. Uh, David McCrone will help us with that from uh, from Edinburgh, uh, but also uh, here in studio, Robert McLaughlin, uh, a lecturer in modern European history at the University of Hartford. Uh, I'm going to start with you, um, uh, Professor David McCrone. A few minutes ago, talked about uh, where they were uh, in the 18th century. So it's really the beginning of the 18th century that this story uh, of the the marriage uh, between these two nations begins. Absolutely. In uh, 1707, Scotland and England both passed the Act of Union. Scotland effectively voted away their own parliament, their own independence, which for most Americans is sort of an anathema. Why would somebody give up their uh, own independence, their own freedom? But at the time, early, you know, first decade of the 18th century, Scotland was basically bankrupt, and there's a whole story uh, of that. They wanted to create a commu- um, colony in Panama, believe it or not, and they went bankrupt. The whole thing was – it was actually called the Darien Colony, like in Fairfield County. Mm. Uh, Scotland was basically bankrupt at the time, and they joined England to uh, establish economic stability, really. And if that was their aim, uh, one would have to say they were wildly successful because throughout the 18th century – uh, Scottish merchants, Scottish sailors especially, now had access to what? American colonies, particularly Virginia and Maryland and the tobacco down there. Scottish sailors figured out how to make a trip from Glasgow, Scotland to Maryland back to Glasgow in 33 days where everybody else was taking 55 days, 60 days. Scottish merchants could do it in half the time. They made a fortune off of American tobacco. There's still streets in Glasgow to this day called Virginia Street and Virginia Place. So for 250 years, Scotland was wildly successful in the Union. Uh, of course, out of all that came shipbuilding and steelmaking. Glasgow was the industrial heartland, one of the industrial heartlands of Britain. And until the World War II era, uh, Scotland really benefited from the Union. I mean, you know, we talk about the special relationship, and we usually are talking about uh, the United States and, and the United Kingdom, and we sort of mean uh, Great Britain, and we kind of mean England. But there, you're, you're suggesting there's a special relationship between uh, the United States and Scotland. Absolutely. Uh, loads of American presidents are either Scottish or uh, Scotch-Irish heritage. Um, 
it's you know there's there's business connections dating back obviously to 1707 um but but scots themselves also made a great effect out of the the rest of the empire you know uh the david uh, john mckenzie did a great paper on uh the east india company even though scots only made up 10% of great britain the scots made up 33% of the officer class in the east india company so Scotland benefited in all kinds of ways from the Union until you get to the post-war era when industrial decline happened. And then, especially, Harriet was right to bring up the Thatcher era. That really changed everything. And some people are going to think I'm crazy, but I personally think the most important person in this referendum hasn't been in office for 24 years, and she's actually been dead for a year. Um, Professor David McCrone, does that seem true to you, the, the kind of um, decline in friendship uh, between uh, Scotland and, and England that was described both by Harriet uh, and now by Robert McLaughlin? Yeah, I think it has to do with the end of the British Empire uh, after World War II. Um, that, that once the, the bargain, it sounds a bit ungrateful, doesn't it, <laughs> that, that you join something and you live there as long as you get something out of it. It's, it is back to the marriage of convenience thing. And, and the great thing you got out of it, and and it's absolutely right. Um, Scots benefited disproportionately from the empire. It, the English would complain that the Scots were on the make. You know, they were out to steal a march. They 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 were not to be trusted because you know they were cunning and wily and 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 all those sorts of things. Worked harder than other people. Um, so all of those things really matter. But look, end of empire. What's what's the deal? Uh, it then becomes it then becomes problematic. After Robert's right, after World War Two, the decline of traditional industries, the, the the search for new kinds of industries, we didn't have a kind of white goods industry really developing in Scotland. That developed in the south of England, uh, and so the state, this, what was called the Scottish Office, um, took a much more proactive uh, uh, role in getting rid of the Rust Belt, if you like, and that raised people's awareness. It said, "Okay, we can be something else. We will try something else," uh, and of course. The, the act of God came along, which was North Sea Oil. Thatcher was important. I remember suggesting to the late lamented Donald Dewar, who was our first first minister, a Labour politician, that the guest of honour at the opening of the Parliament in 1999 should be Mrs Thatcher, because no one had done more to promote <laughs> self-government than her. Donald, who was far too much of a gentleman ever to invite her, I said, no, no, Mrs. Thatcher allegedly has no sense of humor. She'd come, you know, she wouldn't <laughs> realize what we were doing, that would be ironic, but she was undoubtedly a figure. Without Mrs. Thatcher, it may or may not have worked, but certainly she become a kind of uh, a lightning conductor for a lot of those resentment, and even when she went, her party was destroyed. Look, in 1955, her party got 50, 5-0% of the popular vote in Scotland. Uh, by 1997, it got 17% of the popular vote in Scotland. It was, it was an also-ran party. Uh, it, was, it had virtually had its base destroyed uh, in, in that process. So, the, the, can I just go back to something Harriet said, which is a very important one. The Scots and the English don't differ that much in terms of their values, uh, the English got a Thatcher government almost in spite of uh, their centrist views, not because they had moved thoroughly to the right. Now, why would Thatcher be elected? Because it was deemed that she would provide competent government. So the Scots and English don't differ that much. Where we do differ since 1999 with the establishment of the Scottish Parliament is that the two main parties, the Labour Party, 
a Social Democratic Party in European terms, and the Scottish National Party, also a centre-left party, are competing for the vote. They have determined the nature of Scottish politics as uh, a Social Democratic in European terms, whereas the politics of England, of course, have moved certainly under the Conservatives, but also under Blair and the Labour Party, increasingly to the right. It's not that popular opinion in England has moved way, way right. It is that the political system has moved to the right and dragged people with it. Um, you know, uh, some of the people who will vote tomorrow are people who have no living memory of the Margaret Thatcher era because, in fact, there are going to be a lot of very young voters. So let's talk to what I believe is the youngest member of today's uh, guest panel. That's Rebecca Castellani, a young person, a young American uh, uh, living among the young people uh, at the University uh, of Edinburgh. But this is a remarkable thing, too, because the voting age in Scotland, and I've got nothing but respect for Scotland and its uh, its quest for identity. What were you thinking, lowering the voting age to 16? But Anyway, um, that's the that's the reality of it. So, um, Rebecca, I, I guess I'm sort of asking you one of those completely imprecise and unscientific questions, which which is, you know, as you're there, as you're talking to people, uh, I assume it's all anybody talks about, uh, at least over the last few weeks. Uh, what kinds of things do you hear people say? Even the people that have no interest in talking politics that lead off a conversation by saying, I don't want to talk about the referendum, I have no interest in politics, can't help but talking about it after five minutes. I mean, it's just it's all anyone can talk about. The atmosphere is beyond electric. I've spent a fair amount of time in Scotland prior to this, and I have never experienced this kind of electricity and discourse going on just in the streets. I mean, and it's not negative. There's not as much of this, like, schmear campaign as we see in our American political uh, elections, it's really people dialoguing about the issues that are important to them. And really, I've been seeing a lot of young people doing it, even the 16 year and 17 year olds, you know, and I'm with you, Colin, I was thinking that's really, really young to be voting. But every young person I've spoken to, and I'm talking young people under the age of 18, have been more informed as of last week than I was on these issues. And I think it's because it's all they've been hearing for the last few months, whether it be from their parents or from the news or just at school. They really are informed and really do care about Scotland. And I think even both parties can agree, yes and no, that the care for Scotland is higher now than it really has ever been before, and and, uh, especially with respect to nationalism in Scotland and differentiating that from Britishness. I think that David Cameron and Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg's big mistake was kind of coming onto the streets and trying to stir up sentimentality for Britishness without understanding that that is such a different feeling than Scottishness. And the impersonation I've been getting is that people care much more about Scotland and the national quality of Scotland than retaining this kind of old idea of what the union used to be. You know, in just a second, I'm going to ask the sociologist a question that's very much pointed at this. But, but while I have your attention, Rebecca, um, you know, the one thing that I, I think you might have even said this to, an, in, to us in an email, too, is that as you talk to people around Edinburgh, you're sort of aware of the fact that there, there are fewer and fewer lifelong residents of Edinburgh among you and more and more people who have come there from somewhere else. And I keep coming back to that idea. I mean, I know the cities and the countryside are going to be very different. I'll ask David McCrone about that in just a second. But um, does Edinburgh feel like the kind of international city where old settled ideas are therefore put back into play? Yes and no. I mean, it definitely, especially around the University of Edinburgh, is a large international community. You get that with any global institution. Um, but I think if you venture out further into more of the districts, you you get a real sense of Scotland as Scotland, not Scotland as part of Great Britain. And I think that that is the 
thing that we, especially David Cameron, should have made the distinction between because it's completely backfiring for the no campaign to play up on this whole idea, well, wouldn't it be nice to stay part of Great Britain? Aren't they so lovely? Like, don't you want to keep the flag? I mean, nobody cares about that in Scotland. It is absolutely not what anyone is interested in talking about. They're interested in talking about Scotland and what's going to benefit Scotland, not the reasons why we want to stay with Great Britain. Uh, David McCrone, I do, uh, this will be the last question of this uh, segment, and we'll uh, take a little break, but I do want to know, I mean, anytime we look at these kinds of questions, no matter what they are or where they are, there are a lot of questions about various divisions, men versus women, young versus old, but I'm extremely interested in sort of urban versus versus country. I mean, there are, in any country, really, really, I mean, Berlin is a really different place from the German countryside, uh, and New York City is a really different place from the Adirondacks. Um, how different on these issues uh, is uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow, the other uh, big Scottish cities from the rest of the country? Actually, there's relatively little regional variation that would explain difference. I mean, for example, uh, Rebecca and I were talking earlier about this. The border country, which is the bit near England, uh, is likely to vote no, not really because it's near England, but because it has a lot of older people, and older people tend to be no voters. So, the regional variation itself is often a mask for other things. Edinburgh is a very international city. Glasgow is a very international city. Uh, the, the Aberdeen, where I come from, for example, is, is the oil capital of Europe and all those sorts of things. So it's actually very hard to find regional differences within, within Scotland. And Scotland is a highly regionalised society. It's a small society. We're 5.3 million people. Uh, but but it's uh, but it's very diverse and it always has been very diverse. So so region yeah there will be regional variations but they will largely I think if John was here he would say this uh, John Curtis uh, these are uh, almost an artifact of other social demographic factors such as people's age uh, and 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 so on. But it has been a remarkable across the board uh, engagement. Rebecca's absolutely right. The engagement of people with those. With, with those issues is very important. And, you know, there's no, there's no criticism of 16-year-olds having the vote. 16-year-olds can, 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 can join up and die for their country. Why shouldn't they get to vote? And that has been, I think, an inspired move. And in the future, the, the British state and the Scottish state, they're going to have to reduce the voting age to 16. Look, 16 is the new 21 uh, in terms of people's responsibility, and why not? I thought 70 was the new 60. But uh, all right, we'll take a little break. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, we do want to talk about the morning after, one way or another. There, there's got to be a morning after. I think somebody sang that one time. But this... Binging on shortbread and scotch, just in case this becomes a situation like Cuba, where you can't get certain things. No? That can't happen? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Jackie Filson and Josh Nalea. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tilda Swinton. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making really fun grilled lemony moist crispy haggis in a brown paper bag, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the tortured soul who invented anesthesia. And now... 
back to Colin. That's right. The, uh, tomorrow, the story of Horace Wells, uh, a Hartford dentist who is credited uh, among those who, who may have invented anesthesia and who uh, lived a very tragic life and whose very tragic life is the subject of a play, which is now being produced right here at the Hartford Stage Company. But that is to come. Right now, we're talking about uh, the vote in Scotland. I really do want to uh, reserve the rest of this time for just talking about, uh, as we said, there's got to be a morning after. Um, so, um, Robert McLaughlin, I'm going to start with you. Um, in, let's imagine uh, that the yes vote prevails. Um, there's almost not a historical model for looking at what happens next. I mean, this kind of thing doesn't really happen all that often. No, it doesn't. And there's all kinds of implications for this. There are layers upon layers upon layers from currency. To, you know, Scottish politicians say they want to keep the pound, but is the Bank of England going to go for that? You know, the queen, who's going to be the head of state? Is the queen going to remain the head of state for Scotland? Um, one of the things it, which interests me the most is sort of international affairs because Alex Salmon has been saying for over a year that an independent Scotland is going to be welcomed right into the European Union. But in all honesty, there are plenty of countries in the European Union, namely Spain, who an independent Scotland is the last thing in the world they want to see because that's only going to bolster the separatist movements in Catalonia and in the Basque regions, right? I mean, there, there's so many layers of implications for this. It's, there's great complexity to come if there's a yes vote. Uh, also, lots of questions about oil, uh, questions about nukes. Uh, all of those are, are kind of on the table. Uh, we'll come to them in just a second. Um, Harriet Jones, uh, another possibility, of course, is a no vote. Now, one of the things that happened uh, over the last week or so is British political leaders coming around and saying, oh, you want devolution? Devolution, the Scottish term for having po more powers devolve upon the Scots and their parliament uh, and be taken away from Westminster. They've been coming around saying, oh, you want more devolution? You want Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you make <laughs> Mention this. You can have as much devolution as you want. You know, just t here's a menu. Here's a menu. Just pick things that you want and we'll devolve them to you. And first of all, one thing would, will, that will be very interesting in the event of a no vote is whether all of those offers are still on the table. Right. And that's what the what the yes campaign has been saying is, well, I want to see your specifics. What exactly are you going to give us if, if, we, if, if it's a no vote? So that hasn't been made clear. I mean, I think um, the Scottish Parliament does have certain devolved powers as a list of what's reserved and what's devolved. But Harriet actually has a laminated copy of the <laughs> list that she gives to everybody. I've got it right here. Um, but um, it would be, I mean, I think one of, the, one of the key things would be revenue-raising powers. Uh, at the moment, the Scottish Parliament can. It has the power to vary the ta tax rate by 3p in the pound. It hasn't done it yet, but, um, you know... Would a, a larger measure of devolution mean more revenue-raising powers and the ability to change, you know, have a more progressive tax structure? That might be something that, that the Scottish Parliament might really want. Um, David McCrone, I'm going uh, over to you now in, in Edinburgh. Um, you know, one thing that Harriet was saying to me earlier today was she almost wonders whether Alex Salmon ever understood that this moment was going to come, that, it was, that, that, he, you know, that he was really going to get this vote and that he might even get a yes vote out of it and whether or not there's the kind of detailed plan in place that one might expect to have on the eve of an independence vote. Um, so, so let me ask you, uh, what about the, the morning after if it's a yes vote? Well, the, the, uh, two years ago, 18 months ago, the, the, the Scottish government under Alex Salmon produced a huge document of 650 pages on, on what a Scottish, uh, an independent Scot would look like. So, it, you know, it, there it is. Uh, have people read it? Uh, will we pass the, 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 the exam? Well, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Um, but, but Harriet's right. The, 
the claims, oh, we'll have more devolved, have more devolved powers. But as soon as you begin to look at it, they go, well, yeah, the three parties, Conservative, Liberal, Democrat, and and Labour, cannot agree on what those powers are. And they say things like, well, we're going to say that uh, the Scottish Parliament will be safe. We said, yeah, well, we know that. You can't abolish the Scottish Parliament. It would be a big mistake. Um, But they have not specified what those powers are. It's a reflection, if I may say, of the panic of the last 10 days. See, remember, there was Cameron coming up and making his speeches in Aberdeen, where I come from, and all those sorts of things. Uh, He refused steadfastly to have a public debate with Alex Salmond. And and uh, which is why that uh, the Labour politician Alistair Darling became the guy in the front line and not doing a terrible good job, if I may say so. But but David Cameron didn't put his money where his mouth was, and I think people in Scotland see that. So devolved powers, it's all very well saying vote no and then we'll promise. Now politicians, do they not the world over have a real problem in getting people to believe promises? <laughs> it's what they're not good at. Uh, and there's every reason to believe that people are very obviously practically sceptical uh, of, of more powers. Um, Re- Rebecca Castellani, we're coming towards the end of this, and I certainly uh, wondered uh, earlier this summer why anybody would give up a life that included being a nose panelist just to go off to Scotland. Well, I, I get it now. I understand. Uh, I understand the incredible sacrifice you made and, and what you're getting for it. You really are uh, in a position to watch a pretty exciting piece of history unfold. It may be exciting in a good way, and it may be exciting in a very bad way, but but I, I would expect that, that for you, as somebody who's very interested in the history and the story and the literature, of this place, um, the morning after, particularly with, with a yes vote, would be from the even from the point of view of observation and scholarship, a pretty cool moment. I really feel for one of the first pl- times in my life, I'm in exactly the right place at exactly the right time, and I feel so lucky that the cards have fallen the way they have, and here I am in Edinburgh at this revolutionary, quite literary time. So I, uh, I think the morning after is going to be incredibly interesting whether it's yes or no and i tend to make the most of it i know that the pubs are going to be open till 6 a.m on thursday so i plan on posting up somewhere and watching this all unfold hopefully blending in not coming off to american sit back have a pint and watch it all play out uh david mccrone i'll give you the last word are you a guessing man a betting man uh do you make predictions i think the evidence is that it will be the nose will be just ahead i think john is right john curtis is right the polls suggest Something like 52, no, 48, yes. That's very close. It won't go away, though, you know. That uh, it, Now virtually half of the population uh, is now voting. Now, we've changed the question. The question is no longer why should Scotland be independent, but why should Scotland not be independent? Nah. There's the change. You, you woke up Nessie. All right. We have to stop uh, there. That's my last Scottish cliche of the day. Also, thanks so much to our special Edinburgh Bureau Chief, Rebecca Castellani, Professor David McCrone uh, from the University of Edinburgh, Robert McLaughlin from the University of Hartford, and, of course, Harriet Jones, our own Highlander uh, here at WNPR. I'm Kyone Wolf with the official poll results. Turns out 5% of Scots say yes and 95% say aye. Oof, tough crowd.